0: I want to welcome all those who are joining us through Facebook and uh, on YouTube. Uh, Sabbath blessings to each and every one of you. We're about to have prayer together. And we get into a very important study this morning. It's one that really touches uh, each of us uh, as Christians in a very, very tangible way and a very emotional way. It can be very, very emotional way as well. We want to uh, ask... Ask uh, the Lord to bless us in this study. So, I invite you to bow your heads with me. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you again, Father, uh, for the opportunity we have to come together and worship thee, to read from your holy word, uh, and to sing praises to you. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for uh, your watchful care over us, for the angels that you have sent uh, to to protect us from the evil one and help us in our walk. We humbly ask for the Holy Spirit to be poured out without measure this morning on this most holy day uh, to lead us into the truth as we study this topic. Uh, we wish to uh, know what righteousness is. And by your grace given to us freely, uh, we wish to be righteous so that when probation closes we may be accounted with the redeemed. And not just us, our children, our family members, our neighbors, all who will listen. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to reach them. Father, give me the words to speak this morning. It's very uh, important and um, can be a very touching subject. So I pray that you give me the words to speak. And Father, please be with those on our prayer list. Uh, Think of Monica, who's not feeling very well and uh, has hurt her fingers Uh, I've been there. I know how painful that is. I pray that you be very near to her. Be those with uh, Jerry up in Battle Creek. Help her in her situation. And uh, all of us, Lord, help us to draw closer to Thee, thus closer to each other. I thank You for hearing this prayer. Father, for I pray it in the name of Jesus, for He is worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, I have entitled this particular message, and it's actually going to get into two parts. But I've entitled it, Our Reaction to a Church in Sin. You know, the way we react to situations actually tells a lot about us and the way we think and the way we are inside, you know. And so, <clears throat> in our study of the sin issue and how to deal with a church in sin, we've come to, um, you know, a subject that's very close, as I said before, very close to our hearts. As close as a family can be, I think, or or as cherished as traditions can be, and it is a difficult thing to consider uh, for many, many people. And this subject... <clears throat> is what about a church that is in sin? And specifically, as I said, what if the church you belong to is corporately in sin? Now, uh, we have looked at corporate sin earlier, if you remember those studies uh, in this series, but we didn't consider really what our reaction is to be towards that church. Uh, Maybe it's our church, maybe it isn't, but but what is our reaction to be towards that church? And and that is what we began to study uh, last time we were together uh, in dealing with sin in the church, well, the last few messages, uh, on how to deal with sin in the church and a church in sin. And in looking at this question, uh, the last time we discovered that God's remedy for sin, of course, is to repent, isn't it? is to repent and and to return to the Lord, but when a person or a people refuse to repent, God says that his true people are to leave them, they are to separate from their assembly, and there are very very many reasons for that, but I remember you know Amos three three do you remember what Amos three three says? It's a very good question in Amos three three it says, can two walk together except they be agreed? We are to treat them. As we did within the the individuals. When a church disfellowships somebody, they are to be treated as a heathen and a publican, remember. And so we are to treat the church in in a lot of ways the same way as, as a heathen and publicans and make the call to repent because they've become Laodiceans. So we make the call to the Laodiceans to repent, to buy the gold tried in the fire. See? Um, now the same principles that Jesus laid out in Matthew 18, remember, verses 15 and 18, are to be used in dealing with an individual uh, that he laid out there, as also when dealing with a people, and in many respects nations, and of course a church. Though with peoples and nations there isn't much you can do from an authoritative position, but you can do something. And the same with the church. If you get to step two of taking witnesses to your church, you know, well, I'll get more into that in just a moment. But overall, the same principles of reconciliation are to be used, though in a broadened sense. In Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18, let's read that again. Because what we want want to look at here as we read it again is the principles involved, okay? Not so much the specifics per se, but the principles that are involved. So Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18, Jesus said, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Okay? Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And, um, of course, this is only true if the church is keeping the truth and abiding by the Spirit of Christ. Okay? And so... If it is discovered by you that your church is in sin, in the broadened sense, you take the same steps of reconciliation, uh, principally speaking. But you're doing it at a local corporate or corpus, remember, a local body level. The corpus is treated as though um, it is one body, as one person. So when you read Matthew 18, you could say instead of brother, you could say church body, the local church body or if thy church body shall trespass against thee, see what I'm saying, in the broadened sense. You go to the church, you lay out where they are in error and sin. If you're rejected, then you take representatives from maybe other churches uh, to meet with them. If you're still rejected, that's taking the witnesses with you, see, and if you're still rejected, you may take leaders from, let's say, the conference or, or the denomination they belong to, as that's the system uh, of organization that most churches are under, you know, a hierarchy type of order. Um, it's not biblical, but that's just the reality of it. Um, but let's say you do that, and then if they reject that, then what happens usually, and you can see this through the history of many denominations, the denomination will go through the process of either censuring that that church body or removing that church from the sisterhood of churches, from the denomination. Okay. Last time we looked at what we are to do if you go through such steps, using these God-given principles, and instead of there being repentance and reconciliation, you find that your church turns against the call for repentance and may even go further and blame you as being a troublemaker in the church. And I gave an example of that. And there are sad, very sad and grieving, my heart grieves to say, that all around the world, uh, there are churches, church bodies, that are are attacking members for standing for truth and pointing out sin. In fact, there are, there's a record of entire conferences that have been removed uh, from a denomination. And so, You can see there are, you know, I could spend probably several hours giving you uh, examples of such. But you can see it. You can do some research on your own. You can see that. Um, And this is nothing really new, friends. Over and over throughout the Bible you see this happen. And God's remedy has always been to separate from sin and apostasy before destruction comes upon upon the unrepentant. That is why the call is to come out of Babylon. Because what's going to happen to Babylon, they will be destroyed. There, there, you know, there will be utter destruction to Babylon uh, because of the sins of Babylon. And it's a dangerous to put our, our, ourselves in a place where sin is condoned, isn't it? What did sin do to our Savior? He died because of our sins. And we don't want that to happen ever again. We don't want to crucify Jesus afresh, do we? Well, what happens when a church is doing it? You see, you're not to stay in there. You need to separate yourself so that you're not numbered with them. That's why, again, I say the call is to come out of Babylon. Uh, but we see this over and over uh, throughout the Bible. You see this principle virtually every single time. There's either repentance or eventually God's mercy is rejected and there is destruction of the rebellious. Um, and and so, you know, as an individual who continues in sin, if you if you don't repent, then you're removed from the church, right? We saw that in Matthew 18. This is what Jesus says. If you still do do not repent, you eventually, you know, grieve away the Holy Spirit. And then all that will be left for you is the loss of life here and and death in the lake of fire which is eternal destruction. That would be the person's eternal destruction. Now, as a nation, if you sin against the Lord, who is very, very long-suffering and merciful, and you continue in that course, you will eventually reach the point of no return. There will be national ruin, which results in destruction. In fact, you go to prophecy, you see in the United States, the direction they go, their national apostasy leads to national run, see, as a nation. But let's say we read in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, which has been highlighted a lot in the politics in the last year or so. It says, if my people, that's the Lord's people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. That tells us that God's church has a lot to do with the prosperity or fall of a nation. If we will turn from our wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin, and notice what he says, and will heal their land. And what is interesting about this is that it is the faithfulness of God's people in the land the nation that can bring about the turning away from wickedness, the wickedness of that nation. Now, we may not be able to have personal influence within the halls of government, but we can have influence and actually change the culture of a people, a nation, and that will have influence in the leaders of the nation, and God will show mercy, you see, and, and turn for mercy sometimes, and bless because of his people. There are many accounts in the Bible where God blessed other people who weren't uh, believers per se in the Creator, but he blessed them because of the presence of his people with them. That has happened too, see. Um, God can be merciful. You see, our prayers can give the Lord permission to send more holy angels to influence people and thus the leaders. We see that in like the book of Daniel where an angel you know, strove with the king. He had influence with him. And so, always pray for your country, pray for your leaders so God can work even more so than he does on our behalf, and actually theirs as well, okay? Now, in the Bible, there were cities and nations that did not turn from their wicked ways, but instead, as the Bible describes it, they filled up their cup of iniquity. And thus, the the God of heaven destroyed them as they had grieved away all mercy, uh, now it would—it's one thing if they were that way and they were somewhere else in the world, totally isolated. But in most cases, they actually would bring war against the people of God because we are in a great controversy with evil, and they have a leader. We have the—let me give you a couple examples. We have the—the—the the, the Bible example of Noah's flood. Remember that? That was the whole world, right? Pretty much. Uh, It's said in Genesis 6-5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was what? Was only evil continually. God can't just let that go. You see, it's the sin issue, and God has to deal with sin. So, he sent a worldwide flood, didn't he? There was destruction. But who was saved? Those who had separated from that. Those who had followed the, the Lord and were obedient. Okay. Uh, there's the example of, uh, and I'm hitting the, the most common examples, really. There's the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, where it says in Genesis 13, 13, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. In fact, if you remember, God had told Abraham... Remember, Abraham starts out, what if you? there's a hundred righteous men, right? And God told Abraham, got down to ten. God said, all right, if I find ten who were righteous in Sodom, I will not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But all he could find were three. Lot and his two daughters is what it turned out. They were the only ones who obeyed. Now, you could say, well, there was actually four. What about Lot's wife, right? Well, she was found to be unrighteous, wasn't she? Even though she had left the city with Lot. Then she disobeyed the Lord in looking back at what she had left behind, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. As an example to all of us, when we leave behind wickedness and evil, do not go back. Don't even look back. But carry on in obedience to God. Let me give you another example of a nation. Uh, there were was the nation of Amalek. They were called the Amalekites. And because of their evil wickedness, hatred, uh, and war against the people of God, uh, I'll tell you how merciful God was. I mean, they were that way for 400 years against God's people. They were that kind of people, just... Rebellion after rebellion after rebellion and great wickedness. But after 400 years, they filled up their cup of iniquity with God. And God told Saul, King Saul, in 1 Samuel fifteen three, Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. Now, these instances... And, and there are more. There, there, there are more. But these instances show us the principles of repentance and reconciliation or separation and final destruction. We see that in every case. So they show us God's forgiveness and grace or satanical pride and eternal death. That's what we're we're seeing. There's a line that's drawn there. Now, let's say that in your personal situation, you have pointed out sin in your church. And your church turned against your call for repentance of sin, and you have obeyed the Lord, and you've separated from that assembly, you've separated from that organization. What is your attitude now to be toward that church organization? Our reaction, what is it, to a church in sin? You know, friends, there are entire ministries uh, that uh, have been raised up, not by the Lord, but they've been raised up because of separation, either voluntarily or maybe they were disfellowshipped, with the sole purpose to attack and bash their former brethren uh, in an effort to bring attention to how the church behaved and treated them during the process. There are whole ministries uh, that are like that. And what it really comes down to in such cases is that some of these ministries have allowed personal feelings, grudges, and bitterness to consume them, and they're retaliating from emotions, and not so much that there was sin or doctrinal error uh, in their former church, though there may have been. Now let me ask you, is it right to allow such feelings to control our reaction to former brethren, or anyone for that matter? I know when when we left our former church and we left due to their their apostasy, their deviation from biblical truth, and in a lot of cases that they were doing some of these things and removing uh, upright commandment keepers, um, we went through a lot of grief uh, from the former brethren and I prayed earnestly for them and for myself not to become bitter and retaliate out of emotional distress. It's a dangerous path to go. But you know we're social beings. We we have feelings and we get our feelings hurt. And so we got to be very very careful. We we need to go by a thus saith the Lord. What would the Lord have me to do? You know, always think about how Jesus handled such situations, because we want to behave like Jesus did. Amen. And and so when we think about Jesus and in such situations, what were the words of Christ, let's say, towards those who had nailed him to the cross and reviled against him? How did he react to that church apostasy, that church in sin? Did he curse them out because of the pain and bitterness that had dwelled in his heart for what they were doing? How did our Savior respond to those who were murdering him it's an incredible lesson for us, beloved. Luke 23:34 says, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus tells us over and over: We're to love our enemies and pray for them. Now, I am talking about our attitude toward fallen brethren and fallen churches. I'm not talking about being silent about sin. Or, or being silent about doctrinal error, okay? And I hope you see the difference. But the way we behave, our attitude towards others will show whether we are really of Christ or if deep down we're really of Antichrist. And so we need to be careful about what we say and do in these situations. And as you've heard me say before, there are only two spirits in the world we live in, The spirit of Christ and the spirit of Antichrist. And with only two spirits, there are only two churches. We're either going to belong to one or the other. We're either going to have one spirit or the other. Now the Bible declares that God has one church. The original and eternal church of which Jesus is the head. It also defines the church Antichrist, doesn't it? Which originated with sin. It is temporary, though it's been about 7,000 years but with God, a day is is a thousand years, so it's temporary. And his time is short compared to eternity, right? Now Satan is the head of that Antichrist church. And there's going to be enmity, see? We get that right at the beginning of of the Bible, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So this verse tells us that the seed of the two churches, they have an enmity toward each other, but that this enmity will eventually come to an end when Satan is crushed. That's what bruised means. When Satan is crushed by the Lord Jesus, ending the great controversy uh, between good and evil uh, forever. And this is, this is great news, isn't it? This was great news to Adam and Eve. They heard this and they were thrilled Sin will cease to exist someday and someday soon, friends. We can rejoice in the Lord in that. Now, please don't think that Christ emerged from this battle unscathed and his people will not either. The nail marks in his hands and feet and the scar in his side will be eternal reminders of the fierce strife in which the serpent bruised the woman's seed. Now we, as professed Christians, we see the scars of this battle every day in a personal way, as we walk by faith. We see the scars of this battle in a greater sense all around the world, in the division that we find in all the churches that proclaim to be the seed of the pure woman there, and yet there is division and strife and sin. The division is between those who have the spirit of Christ and those who have the spirit of Antichrist. And they they are in the same organized body. But we need to remember that it was an enemy that planted the tares among the wheat. And history shows that all too often the tares have been able to gain control of the organization of which the wheat are members. So what happens when the tares take control of your church organization? Okay? Remember, Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. You see the fruit being produced. What do you do? What happens? Well, when that happens, there's a falling away. Organizational speaking, there's a falling away from the truth. And then there's a greater conflict that arises between righteousness and unrighteousness. And when righteousness, by its very presence, exposes unrighteousness, or the righteous in their obedience to God and His commandments, point out sin, there is great conflict. Not only between the forces of light and darkness, but between brethren. And let me tell you, let me tell you something, friends. When the Holy Spirit leads you to point out a church that is in sin, which is part of His character to do, that's part of His responsibility and you're a member of that church and it continues you you continue to uh, you continue to point that out you will be escorted out of that church membership one way or another because of the forces of darkness that have taken control of it and so the once faithful and true organization actually leaves God's true church and joins the antichrist church all the while believing that they are still the true church of God, and they are removing the tares from their assembly. You see, it's a bait and switch that Satan does. And we fall for it all too often. The tares persecute the wheat, thinking that they are doing God's will in cleansing the temple, when in fact they are doing the work of the seed of the serpent, who is at enmity with the seed of the pure woman, and they bruise the heel of God. And we see this happening all over the world today, beloved. All over the world. We're getting close to the end of time. Satan knows his time is short. Now, Revelation 17, verse 5 says, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now, notice in that scripture that Babylon the Great is the mother of harlots. She's not the mother of virgins, okay? So, if these many different professed Christian churches scattered all over the globe do not have the characteristics of the seed of the pure woman, if they do not have the Bible characteristics that define the church of God, then they are not really who they profess to be, but are a daughter to the mother of harlots and a part of Babylon the Great. They have fallen away from the truth. And then they will war against it in the person of God's saints. We see this through history. How does this happen? You know, there are many that believe that it could never happen to their church. That's one of the problems we have. But there are so many that believe, well, that could never happen to my church. In fact, most all denominations believe that they, have, that they are the one true church of God. The truth is that all too often they are proven to be the, a daughter uh, to the whore of Babylon by the very Bible they, they profess to adhere to. There are some that can see sin and error in their ranks, but they believe that there's a grand exception, you see, that applies to their church. And so God will take the reins in his own hands, right? And he'll remove the sinners. God has never worked that way before. You see, it's the sinful nature of humanity that promotes a grand exception for sin. And that's always been the case. There really is no excuse for sin. There is ignorance of sin, but there's no excuse even for ignorance. When the Bible today is translated into hundreds of languages and found most all over the world, and you have the internet Now, friends, we must study the Word of God if we want to know who His church is and how to be a part of it and how to effectively deal with sin. That's what we've been talking about in this series, The Sin Issue. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, he says, Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. He's speaking about those examples in the Old Testament. and the children of Israel. The experiences of Israel, as recorded in the Old Testament, are to be examples to us, who live at the end of time, of the right ways of the Lord and the wrong ways of man. And I think it's very important to heed this counsel of Paul. And in fact, we can gain valuable insight from the experiences of Israel. In fact, to a great extent, we can see a parallel in the experience of King Saul and David and that of the professed Church of God and the true Church of God and the attitudes of both. I've recently been going through 1 Samuel and reading out of the book Patriarchs and Prophets and I'm amazed at how much of a parallel exists, spiritually speaking. You know, in the life of King Saul and that of David, we see the principles that we've been learning about here in regards to uh, a church in sin. And so, um, I was moved to share it with you this morning. And I think you'll find it rather remarkable. And there are great lessons to be learned in how we are to behave. Our attitude towards churches in apostasy. I encourage you to study the account of Saul in the Bible. Study the account in patriarchs and prophets. And study these things for yourself. In the parallels, uh, believe me, they'll jump jump right out at you. They'll leap right out at you. In First Samuel, we're going to go there. In First Samuel, we re- we read about Israel's first king, and his name was Saul. Now, an obvious question to me is why would Israel want to have a king when they have the Almighty as their leader? The cloud by day, the pillar of light by night, remember that—that that is God. <laughs> Jesus is the head. He was the leader. Now, why would they want to have a king? Well, if we go to 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, we find our answer. 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have, what? This is God speaking. This is the Lord. They have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Now, how did the people of Israel really reject God? Well, if you go to Patriarchs and Prophets, page 605, notice what it says there. It says they rejected God. By departing from God's law, the Hebrews had failed to become the people that God desired to make them and then all the evils which were the result of their own sin and folly, they charged upon the government of God. So completely had they become blinded by sin. So they departed from God's law, and the results of their becoming blinded by sin was that they charged their iniquity to God. They charged it to God's government, because God's government was unfair, you see, they thought. They now wanted a different government. They wanted one with a human king like all the other nations had. Doesn't this sound familiar? You know, Lucifer brought the same accusations against the government God there in heaven. Lucifer said, I can be a better leader than God. His law is unfair. His government's unfair. Let me be your leader. Let me tell you, friends, anytime you move away from God, you move closer to self, which leads to sin. It's kind of like the law of, a law in nature, like gravity, let's say. Any time you jump off a roof, you fall. Any time you leave God, you draw closer to self and sin. And this is why we see such examples played out over and over throughout the Bible. It's the same fruit of self and sin played out. The people departed from God's law, They sinned more and more. Then they blamed God and wanted a new king, not the heavenly king. Now, what exactly is the government of God? The government of God is the organization of all creation under his law. It is his law that keeps it working in a righteous and orderly manner to do his will. And the government of God is actually the church of God. Remember wherever Jesus abides there is his church. So Israel departed from the law of God and then they became unhappy being a part of the government of God because it points out what sin is, you know. They were unhappy being a part of the government of God, being a part of his church, and they no longer wished to be members of his church. So they rejected God, and how did they reject God? By departing from his law and then wanting a new king, a human king. Now what happens to a church when it departs from God's law? Is it still his church? If in time it does not repent, God leaves and it ceases to be his church. It becomes uh, a new organization. See, that's what Satan started in heaven. He started a new organization. And so, it becomes a new organization that's void of the law of God. And then the members choose a new king, a new head. And just who would that head be? Oh, this new organization, they'll profess to be God's church. It'll profess to have his law, the writings of the prophets, the testimony of Jesus. But if God is not present, it is not God's church. Notice this from Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 390. We cannot now step off the foundation that God has established. Who established the foundation? God established it. We cannot now step off the foundation that God has established. We cannot now enter into any new organization, for this would mean apostasy from the truth. Have you heard, ever heard that statement before? You know, that statement is used a lot in an attempt to say that those who are moved by the Spirit of God to leave their fallen church, uh, that to do so would be apostasy from the truth. So you've got to remain in that fallen church. So you have to always stay within a fallen church, you see, when the warning was actually against the existing falling church, choosing a new form of organization, which would lead to apostasy. And like I said, the parallels of King Saul... And uh, the relationship between him and David uh, to the professed and the true church is rather staggering, really. That's like history being repeated, you know. Now, our God is a God of mercy. He's a God of long-suffering, and he let Israel have their way in the hope that they would learn a valuable lesson and repent of their sin in rejecting God and choosing a different form of government and leader of that government. Notice this from the book Patriarchs and Prophets, again, page 605. He permitted the people to follow their own choice, because they refused to be guided by his counsel. Hosea declares that God gave them a king in his anger. Hosea 13.11. By the way, Hosea 13.11 says, I gave thee a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. Put that in the back of your mind as we go about this study. When men choose to have their own way without seeking counsel from God, Or in opposition to his revealed will, he often grants their desires in order that, through the bitter experience that follows, they may be led to realize their folly and to repent of their sin. That's why God allows it. He's trying to lead us to repentance and come back to him, see. She says, human pride and wisdom will prove a dangerous guide. That which the heart desires, contrary to the will of God, will in the end be found a curse rather than a blessing. You know, my dad used this same principle uh, on my brother and I when we were young. Uh, One time he found us (laughs) experimenting with cigarettes, and my family's heard this story a number of times. And so what did Dad do? Did he take them away? No, he made us smoke the whole pack right then. Now, we didn't actually make it that far, you know, smoking the whole pack. We didn't, you know, It didn't take very long for us to get very sick, and we actually turned green. Have you ever seen anyone turn green, a pail of green? It made us very sick. But you see, Dad was letting us have our own way, and he allowed us to reap the results to teach us a valuable lesson. And so in the same way, God was trying to reveal to Israel the sin in their hearts by letting them have their way, and they too would reap the results of their selfishness. So Saul was chosen by God and anointed as the first king over Israel. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin. And thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people, because their cry is come unto me. So, God is saying to Samuel, the prophet, I've chosen the king for Israel, you're going to anoint him. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 608. Notice this, the personal qualities of the future monarch, monarch excuse me, were such as to gratify that pride of heart which prompted the desire for a king. Did you catch that? The personal qualities uh, of Saul were such as to gratify the pride of heart that prompted for the desire for a king. There was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he, For Samuel 9, verse 2, of noble and dignified bearing, in the prime of life, comely and tall, means he was handsome, and he was tall, he was built well, physically, he appeared like one born to command. Yet with these external attractions, Saul was destitute of those higher qualities that constitute true wisdom. He had not in youth learned to control his rash, impetuous passions. He had never felt the renewing power of divine grace. You catch that? He had never felt the renewing power of divine grace. Saul, friends, is a good representation of the professed church that by all outward appearance seems to be righteous and pious, but inwardly is carnally minded and selfishly motivated. As the the professed church falls away from God, they begin to reorganize their structure to be more in line with worldly principles of organization, such as a hierarchy, and away from God's organizational principles where Jesus is the head and we're all brethren. So Samuel obeys God and anoints Saul as king. And in chapter 11, we read about how Saul defeated the Ammonites in the name and under the direction of the Lord. And so far, Saul was ruling as a leader who worshipped and obeyed the true God. In fact, when he was called, he prophesied with the other prophets. See? He started down the right course. But remember, he had never felt the renewing power of divine grace. And keep in mind that the definition of spiritual Babylon is that it was once a pure church, but it has become corrupt. Great Controversy, page 382. The message of Revelation 14 announcing the fall of Babylon must apply to religious bodies that were once pure and have become corrupt. It was after this first victory over the Ammonites, while Israel was rejoicing, that Samuel rebuked them for rejecting God and choosing to have an earthly king. To show them that they sinned before the Lord for asking for a king to rule over them and to encourage them that they they could have confidence in God, and that he still loved them and wanted them to come back to him, Samuel called for rain during the dry season. That is a mighty miracle indeed, friends. Let's look at 1 Samuel 12, verses 16 and 19. Now therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain, that ye may perceive, and see that your wickedness is great, which ye have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking you a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord, and Samuel. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not, for we have added unto all our sins this evil, to ask us a king go back to patriarchs and prophets page 615 before there could be any hope of prosperity for Israel they must be led to repentance before God in consequence of sin they had lost their faith in God and their discernment of his power and wisdom to rule a nation lost their confidence in his ability to vindicate his cause they lost confidence in God because of their sin See, it had blinded their eyes Before they could find true peace, they must be led to see and confess the very sin of which they had been guilty. God is merciful and forgiving, ever desiring to show favor to his people when they will obey his voice. So we're seeing a great parallel here, friends, between the experience of Israel in asking for a king and the professed church reorganizing into worldly lines of order and structure. We see this parallel because the same principles of God and a falling away from those principles are involved. Now the next year of Saul's reign, there was a battle with the Philistines. And it was here that Saul made a great departure from the Lord. The people saw that they were outnumbered, they became very afraid, and they began going AWOL. They were hiding in the rocks and crevices, they were running away. They were fleeing the army of the Lord. And this is where we begin to see the true character of Saul displayed. And it was found that his character did not call the people of Israel to have confidence in God. So the people fled their responsibility to stand for God. And the same can be said of the professed church. Its actions don't call the people to have confidence in God and to spread the end time present truth message of Revelation 14, the three angels' messages. Peace and safety is the call. For you see, it has become a friend to the world like the other daughters of Babylon, the great. And when called to stand for truth, they have no courage to do so because as Saul, they have not the renewing power of divine grace. They've never experienced it or they have fallen away from their previous experiences. Here's another example from the life of King Saul and the actions of Uh, compared to the actions of a professed church. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 8 to 12. And he tarried seven days, according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore said I, (laughs) Therefore I said to myself, The Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. I really didn't want to do it, but I forced myself to do it. You see, Saul had been instructed to wait seven days until Samuel would come to offer offerings and show him what to do in the battle. And this was a test. This was a test of Saul's loyalty and dependence upon God. Because, you see, Samuel was instructed to tarry a bit, but not past the seventh day. And it was shown how Saul was. He became impatient when Samuel didn't arrive. You know, He didn't arrive when he thought he should. And then he disobeyed the Lord by making the offerings to God himself, instead of waiting for the prophet and priest, Samuel, to do it as was commanded by God. And in his response to Samuel, Saul didn't offer as an excuse that he had misunderstood his instructions or that they were not clearly stated. He understood it. He frankly admitted the deliberate violation uh, of his instructions in favor of his own wishes. He decided that he was wise enough, you see, to lead without the help of God. And this is the same mistake. I mean, go back to the beginning. This is the same mistake that Eve made in the garden. And it's the same mistake the professed church makes. They take control of the lines of church work away from the Holy Spirit and they carry out grievances against members that they should not. Thus what are they doing? They're standing in the place of the Spirit of God where they ought not to be. They have forsaken the principles of God and implemented the ways of man in dealing with sin. Notice Samuel's reply. 1 Samuel 13 verses 13 and 14. Thou hast done foolishly, he said, Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee, for now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever, if you would have been obedient, but you failed the test. Notice what he says. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 621. So long as the king and the people would conduct themselves as subordinate to God, so long he could be their defense. But in Israel, no monarchy could prosper that did not in all things acknowledge the supreme authority of God. You see, the true church of God has a teachable spirit. And, And why do they have that? Because they're led of God. It waits patiently upon the Lord for direction and counsel, not wanting to go against the will of God. It obeys the Lord in all things and will take rebuke as it is intended, making no excuses and repenting, acknowledging the authority of God. Saul sinned against the Lord and he was unrepentant of it. And so it was revealed that Saul was full of pride and the Lord cannot allow one with an unteachable spirit, to continue to rule over his people. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 622. Saul was in disfavor with God, and yet unwilling to humble his heart in penitence. What he lacked in real piety, he would try to make up by his zeal in the forms of religion. But those who profess to be followers of God and yet continue in sin have convinced themselves that the forms of their religion is actually what will save them. And sadly, this became the norm, it seems, throughout Israel's history. More times than not. I mean, so much so that by the time the Messiah arrived, they did not recognize him because they had traded truth for their man-made religious traditions. You see, the temple became God. Much like the organization today has become the church. You can't say anything against the organization. That's the church. It's not. The church is organized for service. The organization isn't the church. But the same attitude of at Saul is prevalent today. Open sinners in the church believe they're saved by their good intentions. Saul is an example of a church that has fallen and yet maintains that it is still the chosen of God. He was anointed, right? And how Saul reacts toward David is a parallel at how the professed church, a fallen church, reacts toward the true church and its members. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 634. No matter how zealous men may be in their observance of religious ceremonies, the Lord cannot accept them if they persist in willful violation of one of his commands. How many commands? Willfully and persistently breaking just one of God's commands. You know, Saul could have been disheartened, but but he was not yet forsaken of the Lord. Not yet. He still had an opportunity to repent. Not as king of Israel. You know, he had an opportunity to repent, have his heart changed, and come in, in accordance with the commands of God. Patriarchs and Prophets 6.27 Saul had failed to bear the test of faith in the tying, trying situation at Gilgal and had brought dishonor upon the service of God. But his errors were not yet irretrievable, and the Lord would grant him another opportunity to learn a lesson of unquestioning faith. Uh, of unquestioning faith in his word and obedience to his commands. You see, God gives his professed church every opportunity to learn from its mistakes, repent, come back to him, and obey him. Saul was given another chance to learn and be obedient. Samuel was sent with a message for Saul to attack the Amalekites and not to leave anything alive or take any spoils at all. Now Saul obeyed in attacking, and God had blessed in defeating the Amalekites, But then he disobeyed and that he took the king captive instead of killing him. And the people took the best livestock as the spoil of war. And when confronted by Samuel about this, Saul lied to him by saying he feared the people and that the spoils were meant to be an offering to the Lord. Well, the Lord really didn't say kill them all. He actually wanted all those to be sacrificed in honor of him. No, that's not what the Lord said. 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For, notice this, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. It's not coincidence that Saul later in his life Went to the witch at Endor to get counsel. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. That's not a teachable spirit, is it? It's stubbornness. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. What did Saul do? Was he keeping the commandments of God? No, he had gone into sin. He had rejected the word of the Lord. He was not obedient. So God rejected him as king. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 636. The Lord, having placed on Saul the responsibility of the kingdom, did not leave him to himself. He caused the Holy Spirit to rest upon Saul, to reveal to him his own weakness and his need of divine grace. And had Saul relied upon God, God would have been with him. So long as his will was controlled by the will of God, so long as he yielded to the discipline of his God's spirit, God could crown his efforts with success. Notice this. But when Saul chose to act independently of God, that's a new organization, the Lord could no longer be his guide and was forced to set him aside. Then he called to the throne a man after his own heart, for Samuel 1314, not one who was faultless in character, but who instead of trusting to himself would rely upon God and be guided by his spirit, who when he sinned would submit to reproof and correction. So we see the differences between the two. And this reinforces the principle, friends, that there is no grand exception for anyone or for any church organization as well as the principle of conditions. Evangelism, page 695. It should be remembered that the promises and the threatenings of God are alike conditional. And what are they conditional upon? Obedience to God. So God anointed Saul to be the leader of Israel, the king of Israel. Saul eventually chose his own way instead of continuing in the way of God. Saul forsook the Lord and the Lord set him aside for another who would be faithful and obedient. And this is a principle that's been seen throughout the history of God's people from the beginning of time to this very day. The Upward Look, page 131. The Lord Jesus will always have a chosen people to serve Him. What do they do? They serve Him. (laughs) When the Jewish people rejected Christ, the Prince of Life, He took from them the Kingdom of God and gave it unto the Gentiles. God will continue to work on this principle with every branch of his work. When a church proves unfaithful to the word of the Lord, whatever their position may be, however high and sacred their calling, Saul was the king of Israel. That's pretty high, isn't it? The Lord can no longer work with them others are then chosen to bear important responsibilities. But if these in turn do not purify their lives from every wrong action, if they do not establish pure and holy principles in all their borders, then the Lord will grievously afflict and humble them. And unless they repent will remove them from their place and make them a reproach. You go to Revelation 3 and read about the churches and God says, I will remove that candlestick from you. And so we see this example played out in the calling of Saul. He was chosen and anointed of God, but then fell into apostasy. And the way the Lord dealt with the apostasy of Saul is a lesson for us to learn on how he deals with the apostasy of his professed church. Now, some say that the professed church is the chosen and anointed of God, that it is the apple of his eye, that no matter what it does, it's going through to the kingdom. And while it is true, friends, that the professed church was at one time anointed of God, When it reaches the point of apostasy, it then is no longer the apple of God's eye. And for sure, unless there is repentance, we'll never go through to the kingdom. This kind of blind faith is not what God requires of us as a people, friends. Did Saul go through no matter what he did? No. This is also an indication of how well the devil has confused the definition of whom and what is the true church of God. Is it possible for a church organization to fall into apostasy? Absolutely. Is it possible for a church organization to come out of apostasy? Sure it is. Faithful people make up the church, and sometimes they fall and repent. Same principle. The Old Testament has examples of where God's people have repented and come back to Him in full faith and obedience. Is is it possible for a church that is in apostasy to be lost? Absolutely. Absolutely. Look at Babylon. It was once pure. Now it's fallen. And this is seen throughout Bible history, this example, over and over. But Saul was chosen and anointed by God. Surely God could never remove him. Well, the Bible tells us he was set aside. And though outwardly Saul appeared to still be the anointed leader of Israel, he was set aside. So can you see a parallel with? between the professed church of our time and those who stand on the commandments of God and, and call sin by its right name? At one time, Saul was chosen as the anointed of God. Saul chose to reject God by being disobedient to God's commands. Thus, Saul apostatized from the truth. Now think about this statement again while contemplating the fall of, of King Saul. The Great Controversy, page 383. The message of Revelation 14 announcing the fall of Babylon must apply to religious bodies that were once pure and have become corrupt. The fall of Babylon, once pure, now corrupt. Saul was anointed, yet became corrupt. So God set Saul aside and chose another to bear important responsibilities. The principle is what I'm emphasizing here, beloved. God then chose another to bear the important responsibility. The story of Saul is a sad one. It really is. And there are so many lessons we can learn. In the falling way of Saul, we see a parallel in the falling way of a once anointed church. And in the way Saul treated David, the one in whom God anointed to replace Saul we see how the once anointed church treats the faithful anointed ones who have come out of the fallen one. So Saul was anointed by God. Saul disobeyed God's commandments and was unrepentant, but blamed the people for his sin. And Saul continually sinned, but was still treated as the king, as the fallen church increases in their rebellion and yet professes to still be the anointed church of God. Tremendous parallels to today. And the next time we get together, we'll look at the life and actions of David and how Saul treated him and David's reaction and treatment of Saul. You'll see a, a definite difference between the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Antichrist. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for this opportunity to study into your words, into the Old Testament, and uh, be shown the lessons that are there for us who live here in this time of earth's history. And Father, we wish not to be like Saul, in that he fell away from thee. We wish to be obedient to thee. So we pray for your Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us. Help us to have teachable spirits, and help us, Lord, to take your rebuke, because we know that it comes from your heart of love. You love us, that's why you rebuke us and help us to obey. We thank you again for Jesus and for all that he has done for us. Dying a death we deserve, giving us the opportunity to have eternal life through him. We pray this in the name of Jesus who is so worthy. Amen. Amen.